HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Happy Chef Uniforms, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. Visit happychef.com to order your free 2018 catalog. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of The Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to people I admire in the food world about their path to success, their obstacles, and their opportunities. My guest today is someone you might know from Top Chef, where, she, where her elevated take on Southern food won her a spot in the finale. After years of searching for her own voice in food, she has absolutely found it. And today we're going to hear the voice in person of Adrian Cheatham. Hey, Adrian. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to have you. And I, I'm just going to pause for a minute because, you know, this is actually an all-girl space in here in this, in this bunker. <laughs> we have a guest, though. But we have a guest today because it is my... 20th wedding anniversary. Awesome. <laughs> Congratulations. So my husband Barkley is in the room with uh, headphones on. It's the first time a man has graced the chair, the microphone, and the headphones on speaking broadly. How's it going, Barkley? 
I'm sitting quietly with great respect. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you guys here. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I see. On your anniversary <laughs> of all things working. Yeah. Are you going to interview us too? <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Okay. Adrian, you're welcome too. But um, I am really excited about the journey that I've watched you take because I met you when you were at Red Rooster working with Marcus Samuelson. Uh, I know that I had food that you touched at Le Bernardin when you were working with Eric Repair. I've seen the work that you did behind the scenes on Avec Eric, which was Eric's TV show. And I know that you uh, tested the recipes and wrote up some of the recipes for Eric Repair's books. So I feel like even though this is our first face-to-face, headphone-to-headphone... We go way back. We go way back. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, having spent a good bit of time as a guest judge on Top Chef, I um, I can put myself at least in Colorado and imagining uh, what that season might have been like for you. But I, I want to start um, at the now, and then we'll sort of work backwards. And the now is that uh, you have a pop-up called Sunday Best. Yes. So the pop-up was actually based on the restaurant concept that I was working on before going to do Top Chef. And after coming back from the show, there was so much going on. Um, so tell me about that, because I know oh. that, you know, you're one of the two finalists, right? The All eyes are on you. People have watched you all season, fallen in love with you. And um, so just... Hopefully, does, or they dislike me. <laughs> <laughs> does money and fame follow? Like, how does that work? Money? No. Um, <laughs> and fame is, is not really fame in that kind of way. Like I'm not an actor. I'm not someone that people see all the time. If you're into food and you've watched the show, then you probably might recognize me. Some Come people, on, I've gotten stopped at like, you know, getting my, my passport at the airport. Well, I can only imagine. Well, of course, because you're Dana Cowan. <laughs> <laughs> because you're Adrian. It's going to happen. Um, it's funny because a lot of times people actually recognize me by hearing my voice. Oh, wow. They're like, yeah. you know, I wasn't sure if that was you, but then I heard you speak to the cashier and I was like, oh my God, you were on Top Chef. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently my voice is kind of more distinctive. distinctive, yeah. Um, but it's weird because you first get back from doing the show and it's like nothing happened because you can't say anything. Right. It hasn't started airing. So it's kind of like you just go back to your daily life and act as if you were gone for two months and, oh, I just fall back right into right, life. Right, Tahiti and then yeah. back to the kitchen. But you um, did you go to the show from Red Rooster or had you already I had already left. left. Okay. I had taken a few months off and was working on a business plan, pitching investors, um, looking at spaces, getting ready to work on the opening of my first restaurant when I got the phone call to see if I would be interested, which I was like, hell yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I've worked behind the scenes for 14, 15 years in food happily. I, I'm an operations person. I was good at it. I loved it. Um But when you're given the opportunity to kind of put yourself at the forefront, why not take it? Well, some of the uh, video that I've seen of you that was uh, before Top Chef, you're talking about fulfilling other people's visions, right? So at Red Rooster, even though you could put a dish on the menu, you're really executing Marcus's food. Exactly. And that notion of coming into your own if you have that confidence, it must be incredibly appealing. It is. It's a different level of confidence. I can take my chef's vision and I can know what my chef's style is very well and create dishes for that chef, put them on the menu, make sure they're executed well day in, day out, consistently. But 
you add another layer of what is my vision? What is my food? And then how do I create dishes within that vein? That's a whole nother level that I just wasn't used to. And how did you get there? I, I've seen you visioning with a vision board. And Marcus had said you, know, you hadn't found your voice, which if I were you, I'd be kind of irritated about that. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I was like, really? You I'm sure so? he did it lovingly, but you know, you think so, right? Like, how do you know? Right. Yeah. How are you so sure that I have not right. when I think I'm on the verge of like a breakthrough? Right. Because for years I did have, I mean, we had vision boards at Le Bernardin. Uh-huh. And when what were we on would, those? Like, that's so cool. Oh, everything. Cool. We had seasonal ingredients. We had pictures. If somebody was inspired by a song or by a piece of art or a picture, we would pop that up there too, just so that you can kind of create this overall mood when you're writing menu items. And it was great to be in that headspace. So I tried to kind of recreate the same environment at home. And I just used a dry erase marker on the side of my refrigerator. (laughs) And, you know, just being at home, it puts me in that mood, in that space. And I would play the right music or pour a little bit of bourbon. And that was like What's the music and what's the bourbon? Oh, the music could be different. Something usually kind of like mellow and low, like either some jazz playing in the background, like Dave Brubeck or something like that. Um, Wynton Marsalis. I love jazz. And then sometimes it could be like the most ratchet rap music that I just, you know, <laughs> need to like get hype. Yeah. So um, you did the vision board and where was the beginning of finding your voice? Was it, you know, from childhood, you've had some sense of w- what it would be. And this is like this little seed or, you know, um, you went to ICE, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in culinary school, or was it at Le Bernardin, Like, was it coexisting in your essence for all that time? Or like, I feel like it probably was. I just didn't acknowledge it. Um, at Le Bernardin, there were several times that I would learn a technique or see an ingredient. I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly like what my great aunt did. Like making a bechamel. That's exactly how you make mac and cheese in the South. And then you right. fold it into the noodles, yeah. bake it. You know, you might add an egg or something like that to it. But that's the only real difference. So I would Amazing. see all these techniques and ingredients and fermented ingredients from Korea and Um, just so many different things from around the world and Peruvian ingredients. And, you know, I'm just like, oh, my God, this is so evocative of this whatever item was or this dish or this component that I saw with family in Mississippi or going to Louisiana or in the Carolinas or learned in Florida. Um, So what do you what what was the common thread with the ingredients between the, the South and the global pantry that you saw? The variety. And that's something that Southern food isn't really given a lot of credit for having a lot of nuance and subtlety and variety, but it is there because you have Spanish influence, you have French influence, you have South American, Mexican, Latin influence as well, which is little known. But every time we go to Mississippi, you get tamales and you get certain things like that because uh, you have the people that migrated north. There is Indian influence from Choctaw and Cherokee Indians. So it's such a varied and nuanced cuisine um, that includes everything from fermented condiments to fried chicken and everything in between. So do you feel like um, Southern food has been, I was going to say whitewashed, but that's a really weird term. Um, uh, Southern food has been neutered in a way, like it's fried chicken and barbecue. Right. It, it, it has in a way. Don't get me wrong. Those yeah. are amazing dishes. And that's why they're so popular because who doesn't like, there's something wrong with you, I think, if you don't like <laughs> fried chicken and barbecue and biscuits. There's probably something not right. Yeah. Um, so I it's agree. hard to say that, that those are 
wrong for being acknowledged, but those are the greatest hits. Right. But there is so much more. It's like Prince's B-side. There's so much more to everything than just the greatest hits. Oh, my husband just smiled. Mark, <laughs> I thought we'd really get you with the bourbon. Nice. Do you have a- Definitely. But the, um, the, the Prince's B-sides, are. Uh, that's where I am. Yes, top notch. <laughs> and so in recognizing those ingredients and those techniques, and I love the idea of being at this temple of the cuisine, right? When food comes out at Le Bernardin, it's on these magnificent plates. It's in very, you know, it's extremely precise, extremely clean, clear food. And um, the notion of that having an intersection with home food, home cooking, southern cooking to me is sort of fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that you recognized it as you went. And did that give you confidence or uh, the idea that Oh, let me just, you know, tuck this away. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. And and so maybe it began there this notion of oh, I can develop my own. That's exactly how it happened and I would take notes about things that I realized during the day about how they tied into southern cuisine. And uh, Chef Repair would always tell us how French cuisine at its heart is homey and humble and casual. It's just been, you know, evolved and grown over the years. And I'm like, well, Southern food has done the same thing, just in different ways. So why not continue to let it grow and let it evolve and incorporate influence from other cultures and other cuisines instead of making it exist in this vacuum? Right. And pretend like it can't grow just like French and Italian cuisine did. So you have now, um, so then you put together a business plan and then boom. <laughs> yep. Had <laughs> to drop it. Had to drop it. But the food that you were cooking on Top Chef, do you feel like that was, is that the food that we will see at, at Sunday Best, the pop-up? The food that I was cooking towards the end, yes. Yeah. The beginning, no. Not so much. <laughs> Definitely not. So foie gras macaroons. Yes. And, um, mm-hmm. That's actually an, a menu item that I had right. when I was uh, at Red Rooster. And instead of foie gras, though, we swapped it out for chicken liver to make it a little more approachable. Um, and, you know, make the food cost a little lower. Chef Marcus was like, you know, you can't just put foie gras on everything, Adrian. You, know, you have to rein it in sometimes. So I got that. And um, the name Sunday Best, where does that come from? Well, that actually comes from a concept that developed during slavery and segregation, like during that whole span of time, that you always have to look your best on Sunday to go to church. Um, that's kind of the epicenter of what the community was, was meeting everybody at church. You're in a safe space. You're around people that look like you and have similar beliefs and, and aspirations as you. And so by looking your best, you were defying the stereotypes of yourself and your culture. So that's kind of what Sunday Best is showing, that you can dress yourself up and still be true to who you are and defy the stereotypes of what you're seen as. It's such a great metaphor um, for the food. I mean, because everything we just said about Southern food and defining that stereotype. And then you as a cook and chef and entrepreneur um, and opening a restaurant, like, it's just, it's fantastic. You're, um, you're hoping to open in Harlem. Yes, I've lived in Harlem for about 10 years now, and I absolutely loved it the whole and, time. And I'm wondering, like, the... How do, you, how do you feel about like, those words in Harlem, the contrast between your fine dining background, bringing that to Harlem? Like, what, how does that make you feel, that contrast? And well, that? It really, it, it's very humbling in a way. It's like the most, I don't know, it's paying homage to something bigger than yourself. 
I think Harlem was the first neighborhood in New York where I really got to know neighbors and felt like I lived in a community instead of trying to shut my door before my neighbors got past so I don't see them and they don't see me. This was the first place where you actually talk to people and engage on the street and people know you and you remember them and you know people's kids. So it's really showing how much the neighborhood has grown and the aspirations of the neighborhood. I still want the restaurant to be approachable and something that you can go to a couple nights a week, not just for a special occasion, but it is kind of putting, distilling like the dreams and aspirations of reaching higher for the community and for the food and for me as well. And um, the, you're, doing a, you're doing a pop-up and the pop-up is mobile. Yes, right. every month is at a different location. And so, in fact, we're talking on May 16th, my anniversary. <laughs> but your, your big event um, tomorrow is not your pop-up, but it's at Harlem Eat Up, and it's the Luminaries Dinner, which um, I'd love to hear you talk about um, the Luminaries of Harlem and like what that was like being at the Red Rooster Dapper Dan and all of the people who contributed to that vision and um, the, the Luminaries Dinner. Yeah, it's such a great event. I mean, Marcus put together the Harlem Eat Up Festival, I want to say four years ago, but I could be off. I think this is the fourth. Okay. And it was a celebration of Harlem restaurants, and it brought fine dining chefs and popular chefs from all types of cuisine up to Harlem, and they partnered with a restaurant in the neighborhood to create a dinner together that highlighted both restaurants' cuisine and showed people that Harlem is more than just what you think. I mean, this was before Whole Foods opened, so <laughs> it, was, it was pretty revolutionary to bring people yeah. up to Harlem to... Um, to just eat good food. You know, they'd think that they were just coming up for Sylvia's or Amy Ruth's and Melba's. Um, but Marcus wanted to show that there's so much more to the neighborhood than just those typical soul food spots. Um, and he did a great job of getting people together. And the highlight of the festival is always the luminary dinner, where he honors one or two people in the neighborhood that have had a significant impact um, and he's done such a great job of always having people from the neighborhood be a part of the growth and development of his brand and his restaurants. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people, like we saw Bevy and we saw Dapper Dan at the opening of Street Bird, and they come into Red Rooster all the time. So it's great to be able to honor them and say thank you for everything that they've done for the neighborhood. It is a, re a remarkable neighborhood, and I love um, how Marcus has played such a pivotal pivotal role mm -hmm. uh, in just gathering extraordinary people and making a, such a convivial meeting place, mm -hmm. you know, that everyone wants to come. Like, it feels sort of very 1940s and very sort of futuristic all at the, all at the same time. Another thing that I love about Harlem is the intersection of culture. And in learning a little bit about you, I know that you love to dance. I do, yes. And um, <laughs> you really did your research. <laughs> <laughs> and you, it seems like when you went to Florida A&M, you did journalism mm -hmm. and you danced. Yeah, that, those were my primary. I also had a, two jobs. I worked at an advertising agency um, and I had a catering company doing dessert catering. Um, how did you do all that all at once? <laughs> With difficulty, but uh, I had folders for everything. Is part of your strength in being a chef, uh, being incredibly organized? 
being organized definitely helps. Yes. <laughs> and being able to multitask um, that. Yeah. I kind of developed those during college out of necessity and they've served me very well. So the dancing, because you, I've seen pictures. You're a beautiful, elegant oh. dancer. What is the connection between dance and cooking? Well, cooking, if you've, you, I know you've seen so many restaurant kitchens and how they operate. It is kind of like a ballet, how people move around one another. You have fire, you have knives, you have hot pans and hot oil. And it can be a dangerous place if someone is out of step. So it's a dance background actually helps because you can kind of, you know, you're aware of everyone around you. You're aware of your partner's movements. So the people that I'm on the line with, I see their movements, they see my movements, and we just kind of flow around each other. So it's it's kind of one in the same in a lot of ways. You just, instead of music, you're kind of going to the cadence of orders being called out. <laughs> I also think it's probably a lot hotter and a lot more yes. dangerous. <laughs> yes. And what happens if your, you know, your partner in this pot de deux on the line is like, you know, a clunky football, football players are probably very elegant as well. But, um, you know. Oh, it's rough. It's I've, rough. I've definitely worked with guys that are just like, you know, the, the typical like bull in a china shop where your elbow are flying and you know you catch an elbow to the chest and you're like oh my god like I'm standing right next to you and you saw me standing next to you and you still managed to like bump into me and three other people like how do you do that you know it's how do you train people out of that because I know you ran Marcus's kitchen for a time and uh, it's difficult it's because you know your movement is something you're used to it almost I hate to say because it's not right but it almost takes that person hurting themselves for them to really understand how dangerous it is for them to move like no one is around them. So it's kind of like walking through Times Square. You kind of duck and dodge and you make yourself sideways to go through and you kind of have to do the same thing in the kitchen because if you, you don't want to burn somebody else, you don't want to spill oil or hit someone with a hot pan. Um, and luckily I've, I've never really seen cooks hurt somebody else too much, um, but they usually hurt themselves. Right. Because they'll turn around with a pot in hand and splash hot liquid on themselves. So that it, it after that they get it. They're <laughs> they like pay a little more attention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're a little more aware of their surroundings. And what do you do for focus? Because one of the things about working in a kitchen is intense focus. And I feel like that's also a connection between dance where, you know, it's a very I mean imagine because I am definitely not a dancer of any kind. Um I'm looking at your yeah, husband. I know. For I'm looking at my husband too. I would, I would debate that. You would debate nice. that. Not in the balletic sense of the word, right? Right. right. <laughs> oh, you want to say something, Barclay? Well, I was I as a waiter, I found that a lot of fellow waiters were actors and dancers, and there was definitely the sort of the elegance of everyone moving together and being aware of each other. Mm-hmm. And there was a kind of a choreography around it, just like the best rugby. Ah. You know, similarly dangerous and elegant. You know. <laughs> of course, Barkley actually thinks that um, driving a car is like rugby, and that's dangerous. Oh, that's oh, very safe. But <laughs> I, w- I actually would love to go back to a question or something you mentioned way, way back at the beginning. Are you going to ask about the bourbon? No. Oh. But the Native American influences in cooking, in Southern cooking, I think most people have no idea about that. Yeah. And um, I-, I would love to hear, if you're open to it, a little bit about what those are and how those have helped evolve Southern cooking. I think many people don't even know that Southern cooking has evolved. Yeah, most people are not aware of that. So those two things would be amazing to hear about. With the Indian cuisine, um, you know, it's a lot of the use of indigenous ingredients and corn and things like that that were brought up when the Spanish came. 
um, and brought up from further south. And it's, um, it's slaves and the local Indian tribes mixed a lot. And that's why there are a lot of black people that, you know, the common quote is like, I have Indian in my family. And our great grandfather, we think is part Choctaw, but we have yet to confirm that through any kind of documentation, um, maybe a DNA test. But there were so many things like uses of corn and corn doughs and flatbreads made out of corn and a lot of cornmeal. I mean, that's how grits pretty much came about. Um, so all of that is a lot of the Indian influence. And even on the Trail of Tears, a lot of slaves escaped with them to try to get out of the area and find freedom um, on reservations. So they mixed a lot in the cuisine, but unfortunately a lot of it did get moved out with the Trail of Tears, but there is still some of that inherent cuisine there. You just have to look for it a little bit harder. Okay, so I just want to say that you've just experienced my marriage <laughs> because Barkley comes from something that he remembers and um, derails the conversation. It is some awesome. completely Please. fascinating new place. <laughs> it was fascinating and new, you're right, but... Um, we were talking about focus, and you just exhibited <laughs> a complete lack of focus. Or a different kind. Or a different, uh, yes, a focus on an interesting detail. Yes. May I do a follow-up? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe after the break, Barkley. Shall I cut his I mic? Hope, <laughs> I hope my husband and I get to this point. <laughs> That's joyful. <laughs> okay. So, focus, not what he just did. Um, so when you're dancing, you're focused when you're cooking you're focused how do you how do you find focus and cultivate focus it's i mean i guess it might have been easier for people around my age because we grew up pre cell phones yeah. so you didn't have constant distractions you had to actually seek out distractions because you would just be bored out of your mind um so it wasn't hard to develop focus it's harder for people mainly to maintain focus mm -hmm. but in a kitchen like I said, you know, it's so it's it can be dangerous and it can be hot and uncomfortable and you can get angry and you'll be frustrated. But that frustration and that kind of like uncomfortableness just helps drive your focus because you're so tuned into mm -hmm. what you're doing. And you're so tuned into everything around you that it actually takes a lot to break focus. That's really interesting. Okay, with that thought, we're going to um, take a quick break. Maybe my husband, Markley, will get a follow-up. But what I know will happen is that we will hear more from Adrian Cheatham, who has the pop-up Sunday Best in New York City. Stay with us. Maybe you're looking for a coat for yourself, or you want a bold look for your staff. You might even need a new style for your restaurant, whether it's modern, industrial, or farm-to-table. Whatever you're looking for, Happy Chef has got you covered. Their wide variety of chef apparel and products are perfect for teams of all sizes and styles. And with the industry's easiest custom embroidery, you can add your logo, name, or fun artwork to many of their other products in minutes. Here's what you do. Visit happychef.com and choose from their incredible selection. 
With only a couple clicks, you can customize many of their products to personalize your look. Right now, they're even offering free custom logo setup on all orders over $150, a $95 value totally free. Visit happychef.com now to order your free 2018 catalog featuring new styles and incredible comfort. Happy Chef, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, your host. And in the studio with me is Adrian Cheatham and my husband, who you heard break in with a very interesting question. He, um, he's a reporter, as he likes to say, so he gets to ask nosy questions. And he's great at it. David, you are outdoing yourself today. That's my engineer who's just, he's with the, um, the auditory emojis really helping us out on the show. So uh, we have been talking about Adrian's upcoming restaurant. And I, I want to ask, what is the hardest thing about planning to open your own restaurant? Because right now you're doing pop-ups as you develop the concept further, but you had... Um, you know, quit working with Marcus Samuelson to focus on it. Like, what did that feel like to just say, you know what? I actually need to stop working for someone else right now. Like, how did you come to that notion? That was a really hard decision. Um, I've worked for other people for 14 years in restaurants, and I was happy doing it. I'm happy to take cash, and the chef takes credit. <laughs> and they're the person in the forefront. Um and I loved being operational. It's, it's easy. It's like you can look at things and know what needs to be done and you just execute. But I did want to say, finally, if, if I'm going to kill myself, if I'm going to work seven days a week, it's going to be for me. And I loved making someone else's vision come to life. But I did want to kind of fulfill that for myself. So if I'm going to you know, work 20 hour days back to back and open restaurants and do all this, I want to reap the benefits from it. And, you know, it's, it's weird, because it's kind of the antithesis of being behind the scenes and saying that I'm happy to let someone else get the the recognition for all the work that gets done. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I want this for me. And how hard was it? Women, in particular, have a really hard time. How hard was that for you? It was hard because it almost felt like arrogant. It, it felt like, you know, a little bit out of character for me. And so I, I struggled with it. I had a hard time with it. But I'm like, you know what? I'm working seven days a week. I'm traveling on what would be my day off to go do an event with my chef in another city and prepping, packing, coming back to the restaurant. So if I'm going to do all of this... Why, why am I doing it in someone else's name instead of my own? And did Top Chef and having all that, I mean, there, it's very outward facing. Obviously. Yeah, there's no one to hide behind. <laughs> <laughs> so was that your coming out party? Like, okay, well, I'm just going to put myself out here for this. And that's going to prepare me for putting myself out there for the rest of my life. Yeah, I usually just take a leap. I, I don't take baby steps, I guess. I thought I was. But once you look back, it's like, why would Top Chef be like a small step in this process? No, it's a huge <laughs> step. And um, so 
you came to terms with it. And did you struggle over, you know, money, how to, you know, how to pay for the fact that you were going to just give up your income so you were not getting the you weren't getting the credit or the cash. Right. I mean, the good thing about working in restaurants is you don't have a lot of time off. So I saved a ton of money. Oh, right. Um, There's no going out, right? <laughs> right. There is no going out. You get a free drink after work. You get right. a shift, shift drink, drink and, you know, you order cheap takeout and, you know, food like that. So it's not like I'm spending a lot of money. Um, so I had set aside money to stay out of restaurants for at least six months. And that was my plan. And then after that, I was going to go back to a restaurant And during that six-month period, I was like, you know what? I've thought about this. I've had these ideas for years. Let me take this time and kind of collate that and just see what the possibility of me opening my own place would be. And then by the end of that six-month period, I was like, I'm not going back to a restaurant now. Like, (laughs) hell no. And do you find in doing the pop-ups that you get feedback from people that shapes or reshapes your idea of what the restaurant could should be yeah the pop-ups are great because it's not like a restaurant where you don't see the diners all at one time eating the same dish so you can see as the plates are dropped you can see how people interpret the dish visually you can see when they start to eat it how they perceive the dish as well and then it is a more informal environment where people feel more comfortable talking it's like a big dinner party um, just not at your house at someone else's restaurant, <laughs> but they do feel more comfortable talking. And I love that feedback and I love that interaction. I've noticed that you're really observant about how and what people eat. It's something that you said during Top Chef that you could tell if your dish was a success or a failure by essentially how people ate it. You know, did they finish it? Did they pick at it? Mm-hmm. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about the visuals of what's on the plate. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, The flavors and the textures are obviously the most important thing. But my mother and I thought she was crazy when she said this because she worked in restaurants. So Oh, right. She she managed restaurants. Yeah, she was front of the house. She started as a waiter, then became a host and a restaurant manager by the time I was, you know, in like sixth, seventh grade. So wait, I've, I've been meaning to ask you, did growing up in basically a restaurant family shape you? Like, does your mother think you're crazy? It shaped me in a lot of ways. Tell me why. I Tell mean, me how. A restaurant is a very odd environment, but if you've grown up in one and you're slightly socially awkward as a child, you actually feel more comfortable in a restaurant mm-hmm. because you don't have to socialize. There's no small talk. It's what needs to get done. What's the time frame? It's usually 30 seconds. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, it's very curt, but it's great and it's loving and it's, it's to me that's where my family was was always in restaurants so Mm -hmm. I felt very comfortable in that environment and I actually had a harder time being out around people talking than I did in a restaurant um yeah so anyways the advice your mom gave you oh so she said when um when she would make us dinner uh she would say presentation is 90 percent I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like 10 years old. I'm like, what are you talking about? Presentation is 90%. I don't care what it looks like. I care about what it tastes like. Right. And she's like, no, it's important. It's, she's like, you know, trust me, if I, if I made this look bad, you would not want to eat it. Right. What do you think of Dave Chang and Ugly Delicious? I think that's awesome. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's some of the best food is rustic and home style and plated family style. And it's not contrived and delicately placed. Um, and that's the food that most chefs and people in restaurants eat on our days off. Right. Um, because sometimes the ugliest food is amazingly delicious. Um, some things you can't just make pretty. Yeah. 
but it is if I'm paying a certain amount of money and I want a dining experience, then I do expect it to look a certain way. Right. There could be a, a price value relationship there, mm-hmm. like where the food on the plate is feels like art and you're experiencing art and you're paying for artistry. Yeah. Um, as well as getting filled up. But mm-hmm. you're sort of filled up in so many ways in that um, in that case. That's interesting. And I wonder what the price correlation, where the threshold is that you expect it to look good. Right. I mean, I have to think about that because it's true that, you know, if you're getting, I don't know, if you're getting a stew, your expectation is that it's just like, it's a cheap cut of meat, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, so, and it seems like the restaurant that you're going to do will be, um, as you said, that the midpoint, like not fine dining, but beautiful, delicious dining. Yes. Yeah. I want it to be casual and approachable and fun. Um, I just want the food to look not borderline out of place for the environment that it's in, mm-hmm. um, but I do want it to look very serious and important and dressed up like somebody in their church clothes. <laughs> That's partly trying to leave quietly, but he's trailing. Not so quiet. Trying to escape. <laughs> Cables tripping over. Um, so now I'm waiting for David to do wah wah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, did Marcus or Eric have words of wisdom as you began to launch, or your mom or anyone in your life as you focused on getting to the next step? Oh, yeah, definitely. I've, I try to engage as much information as possible. Um, so what sticks with you? Ooh, let's see. Well, my husband has written and reviewed several business plans. Um, he's an entrepreneur. So getting information and on... you're a newlywed. So yes. I'm a 20-year at, like... I don't or know. two months. You're two months. Yep. You're like almost literally to the day, two months. Yeah. yeah. And congratulations on 20. That is <laughs> truly amazing. You'll get there. I do think we will. Yes. Um, so um, he, so he, business he's, plans, yeah, yeah. he's had a ton of input and advice on how to structure the financial models and all of that. And it's incredibly helpful. Um, and he's also helped me get in touch with people who are heads of restaurant companies where I thought I had the in. Um, a lot of his friends know investors in restaurants and people like that. So they've helped kind of review the business plan and just tell me things that they're looking for. And, and honestly, because he's a, his company, my husband's is kind of a tech based Mm -hmm. his, the way I was doing the business plan, Mm -hmm. kind of according to input that he had given, it was very kind of bland in a way. So when I brought it to people from the restaurant space, they're like, where are all the visuals? Like we need pictures. <laughs> I'm like, that's so true. Why didn't, you know, so it's been great. And repair has given me a ton of great advice about partners and structuring, um, deals and partnerships and, you know, kind of things to look for a little bit. Um, so is the idea that if one's about to launch a restaurant, one should have, partnerships lined up as part of it or it depends like if I had enough money to open it on my own Mm -hmm. then I would take on you know an equity partner to help with the front of the house so that somebody is just as vested in it as I am um between our sweat equity and the capital that we have um that would be a great structure to have because we would both benefit we would both be working very hard and we would both be in it together right um so you do want to have some kind of partnership deal where the other person is also incentivized to give it their all. 
right? The, the advice that I've um, been given on this show by um, a, a great lawyer, Jasmine Moy. I don't know if you've come across her. She's like, you just need a... Oh, yes. I actually she, met her at Cherry Bomb. She's fantastic. Nice. And, um, you know, she just talks about how important it is to have a lawyer on your team. Because it's a place where people sometimes say, well, I don't, I don't need one, or I'm going to get one later, or it's too expensive, or I can review it, or my dad can review it. or um, And because she's seen so many partnerships explode. Um, that is great to know. And, and really unexpectedly, like, but they're my best friend, but they have my best interest in mind, but it's not a lot of money, or it's not a lot of money to them. And all of these rationales that go through the mind of a chef and... She says, like, tamp down all of those voices and get yourself a lawyer. Like, it's going to mm. cost you so much more money in the long run than whatever that it is in the short term. And I was like, that, that sounds very realistic to me. Because yeah. I, I can imagine, you know, I read a lot of contracts. I'm like, it's fine. I mean, I just signed a contract, you know, where I'm going on a boat um, and, uh, you know, in the sea. And it basically says... And if you die, get dismembered oh, or, or you know permanently injured, we're not responsible. And I'm like, uh, I guess I have Barkley to sign then. that. <laughs> <laughs> he's coming um, for them. I actually did. I asked Barkley. I'm like, do I need to sign that? And he's like, you kind of do. Otherwise, you're not going to do the gig. Oh. Like, but um, the restaurant equivalent, let's hope, you know, it's not like if you lose the restaurant, yeah. what happens to you? But so, anything could happen. And that is great to know. Um, I actually, like I said, met Jasmine at Cherry yeah. Bomb. And... She actually gave me some randomly free advice when we were talking. And I was like, oh, my God, I'd never thought about that. So, yeah, I definitely need to get back in touch with her. Yeah, she's, she's great. And when you, um, when you think about what the challenges are that you're trying to overcome, the challenge only being, like, your restaurant's not open yet, rather than, you know. Um, what do you think the, the biggest hurdle is? Like, what do you, um, you know, is it internal and emotional doesn't sound that way. Is it is it finding the money? Is it you know finding a location that's the right price? Is it getting, um, you know, what is the? I what, think what's a lot of it is, is finding the money. Yeah, um, that's not something I was familiar with doing. I didn't plan on opening a restaurant for years, so I didn't cultivate certain relationships and try to meet certain people. I was you know just meeting people to say hi and you know, didn't necessarily say, oh, they're a potential investor. Let me, you know, make sure we stay in touch. And so I probably didn't take advantage of things during the 14-year career that I had when it came to what could have been the money side now. It's actually a great point to pause on because it, in a way, it feels really like dirty and greasy (laughs) to imagine every contact that you make or person you meet, rather, each person you meet as a future contact. But Sometimes the way that I think about it is that as much as uh, it feels icky, um, it's also possible that you could help them, right, in the future. And so so the notion of let's stay in touch, you know, I might be able to do something for you. Or like in your case, you know, I could cook your daughter's bar mitzvah. Or I could, you know, there's something that like in the future, it would be awesome for you to know me. And it could be awesome for me to know you in the future and just start collecting people that are just part of the people you mm-hmm. just want to know and like have in your life and be in, in their life. So understanding that it's always going to be a two way street and you can start collecting at any point. Like you can collect now, <laughs> you know, um, it's not over and you can also 
spin backwards, right? So just because you didn't have that conversation um, and say, hey, you know, like I'd love to have coffee with you, when you met all those people at the restaurants, it doesn't mean that you, you can't begin. You have so much to give. You have something you want to get. But it's not like you're desperate. It's like a conversation. And to like start those conversations and just really in, enjoy them mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, marking them in the calendar as like useful or not useful. Yeah, that just always felt so like, eh. But that's a great perspective. And I like that one a lot more. It makes me a lot more comfortable with the overall relationships. I, um, I do, a, I try to do a whole bunch for charity and I'm very uncomfortable asking people for money. And the people the, uh, at organizations like City Harvest or Hot Bread Kitchen, where I'm involved, they'll say, just remember, people do want to part with their money to give it to a good cause. So you're giving them the opportunity to put it at the place that you think is the best place nice. for their money. And those are both and, great organizations. And yeah, they're awesome. Uh, so, you know, it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's the same, like, someone who has an opportunity to partner with you, like lucky them, you know, what a great, um, what a great, great opportunity that would be. So the, so the money first and foremost, mm-hmm. and yeah, then the I money guess is, is the biggest thing that I'm, I'm concerned about. Um, and finding a partner that would be in it like me. And so, um, where have you looked like, and where would you want to look like, what is that? How does that feel to you? So I started, pitching before going to do Top Chef. And okay. I met with um, a few people. I met with the head of the Quality Eats brand and company. Oh, yeah. Um, just to get some feedback on the business plan and things like that. This was, again, before Top Chef. And I couldn't tell people I was going to do it. I couldn't, you know. So a lot of those conversations could have maybe gone differently. And now you'll revisit them. Yes. So now it's kind of circling back now that I've gotten settled back in. The wedding is over. We bought a place and moved. So now that all this is finally settled in, now I'm starting to review the people that I met with before. And luckily, I studied finance in college for a couple of years. And a lot of people that I met during that time make a lot of money now. So <laughs> That's great. So circling back to some of them and finding out who they can put me in touch with. Um, but it is still just kind of like, I don't know, at first, before doing Top Chef, it was just kind of weird and awkward, and I didn't know how to approach the conversations. Um, but I've definitely been getting more comfortable with it since then. I just have to really um, get the meetings on the books and try to get commitments for money. But that is what I'm most worried about. Right, I feel like... Um it's getting over the discomfort because the most uh, the most successful people just bluff their way through it till they really oh feel that God, yes. confidence. And no one goes in like, yeah, I think it's going to be like, you know, I'm the best bet since, you know, Henry Ford. <laughs> so just keep, keep that in mind yes. as we have this conversation. Um, Thank you. But okay, well, uh, it's been amazing talking to you. I'm really excited as you, you know, develop this, um, restaurant further on the show, I always like to have someone pay it forward. And so I want you to think about a woman who has guided you, um, somewhere in the food hospitality world and, um, what lesson you learned from them that really has set you on your path. Hmm. Well, there, there are a few, Um, One person that had an early impact and continues to be a resource now, um, there are actually two that 
I'm in touch with actively and, and we communicate a lot. One is Mandy Ozer. I love Mandy. So she's, she's at La Berna, <laughs> She was at La Bernadette mm-hmm. has her own um, restaurant. Yes. Restaurant and wine bar, Ardesia. Um, and she's just amazing. You know, we actually, she was one of the first people I contacted when I was putting together the business plan just to get some advice from her, talk about partnerships and financial structures for business partners and get worst case scenarios. What can go wrong? What am I not thinking of? And Mandy, as busy as she is, and she just had a kid, um, beautiful little boy. I saw him there. at the green market. He's oh. so beautiful. Those <laughs> eyes. He's got oh. the most amazing eyes. Yeah. Her and her husband are so lucky. Um, but she's always made herself available to help me with that information. And that's, it's amazing. And there's, um, did she, what was her cautionary tale? Like what was the worst thing? Um, well, they had, they had a partner that they worked with and it wasn't bad, but she just said, you know, be aware of partners that say they don't want to be involved, but then want to walk in the kitchen or want to tell you how the menu should be designed. You know, make sure that you spell everything out clearly mm-hmm. in your partnership agreements. Back to so, the lawyer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Call Jasmine. Yeah. And um, and there was a second woman. Oh, uh, yeah. So there's also Rita Jamey. Um, I saw Rita was at um, your pop-up. Yes. She actually, we were neighbors. Oh, I love Rita. <laughs> she is amazing. So she and her husband owned La Caravelle, which was a restaurant in New York for years. And they, I believe they closed in the early 2000s. I one time um, knew the exact year, and I can't remember now. Yeah. <laughs> and then now they have the wine and champagne company. Um, and Rita is, again, a great resource. She's been in Harlem for years. Another person like you that I know I'd cooked for for years and years, and then finally met uh, when I was working for Marcus. And she's like, how come we've never met before? And she's just been great. You know, we always keep in touch, and she helps me with all kind of information. And, you know, we talk about wine pairings and is wine a strength or um, an opportunity for you? It is becoming a strength, but that's mainly because my husband has such a passion for wine. That's great. And together, like he proposed at a vineyard because we both love Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs. So we took a vacation out to the Willamette Valley last summer and that was where he proposed. And his, his passion for wine definitely made me get more into it. So we'll spend a few months exploring a region or a grape. And, you know, it's it's helped a lot in my career. Okay, usually I end with the two, you know, the the um, women inspirations. But I have to ask you, because we've talked a little bit about your husband and we started the show with my husband. <laughs> um, how does a chef who works seven days a week, sometime, you know, back-to-back, 20-hour days, how do you meet the perfect guy and... Um, how does he decide to marry a chef? It's, it's, the meeting is the easy part. Okay. <laughs> Where'd you meet? We met at a wine bar in Harlem. Okay. And it was after a long day at work and he was sitting at the bar having dinner. I was sitting down having a glass of wine, just blowing off some steam. And the bartender was like, you know, he's actually a really nice guy. You should talk to him. He lives <laughs> in the neighborhood. And I was like, oh, whatever. Um, and I looked over and I was like, oh, and he's really cute. Um, <laughs> but I was moving to Bermuda to open a restaurant there with Marcus. Marcus. So we exchanged phone numbers. We went out a couple of times and then I moved away for three months. Um, and then when I came back to New York, he texted out of the blue one day and just said, hey, not sure if you're in the city. I was supposed to be going to London or D.C. to open Marcus's Mar- yeah. place there. Um, so he's like, I'm not sure if you're even in New York, if you're ever coming back. But if you want to grab dinner, let me know. And we went out to dinner and he would, 
when I was working, he would come in for dinner and I would cook him dinner and he would sit at the chef's table or he would sit at the bar and that would be like our way to kind of sit and have dinner because I couldn't leave the restaurant. So he would come to the restaurant and have dinner with me there and then That's some kind of date go night. out. Yeah, seriously. And then I'd meet him at like 12 or 1 a.m. So he'd go home and take a nap. And then when I got off of work, we'd meet up for a drink. And he's like, I don't want you to think I'm always just trying to get together with you late at night. I was like, <laughs> I only have about 45 minutes before I have to go to bed. So let's have a drink and talk and get to know each other. I don't think it's like a booty call. Like, trust me, yeah. this is when I get off of work. I don't, I don't take it personally. I love that. So. And um, how did, I mean, he does, did have to put up with those hours. So. Yeah, he did. And it was, it was tough because he typically gets up early mm-hmm. and I stay up late. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a tricky little balance, but we worked it out where now I'm on a more of a set schedule anyway. But when I go back to restaurant hours, I would just wake up early so I could spend time with him, go to the gym together, have coffee, and then take a nap <laughs> and then get up in the afternoon and start my day. And then it's kind of actually like the um, the chef mom schedule, yeah. right? Because you want to be up with your kid, mm-hmm. but you're cooking late at night, so you yeah. get your morning time, nap time for you, the grown up, right. and then go back to work. And he does the opposite, so he'll take a nap in the evening and then wake up later in the day. So naps are the solution. Okay, yes. um, guys, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you, David Tashor. You outdid yourself today. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Carlin Thompson, thank you for being here with me. And um, and Adrian, of course, people are going to want to uh, follow you, follow the pop-up, follow the journey. So how can they find you? Um, Instagram primarily. The website that I have actually, adriancheatham.com, is up, but I will actually make it up fully as of, I think, tomorrow. Oh, great. Um, But Instagram, Chef Adrian Cheatham, is where I post all the information and the links to everything. So that is the best way to stay up on everything going on. Fantastic. And this is, well, you know where to find me, you guys, I hope by now, um, at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. But as Adrian says, mostly Instagram, because I have like big heart for Instagram. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.